How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Welcome back to the broadcast. We have again the privilege of having Dr. Pastor Erwin Lutzer. He's the pastor emeritus of the Moody Church in Chicago, where he served as senior pastor for almost 40 years. He's written countless books. One Minute After You Die remains his best-selling book ever, but his newest book that he just dropped is called We Will Not Be Silenced, and this book is one you should pick up. We have a special deal for you. If you go to christianbook.com and use the promo code SILENCED, you can get that book for half price, and this book will talk to you about, or when something provoked you to put this together. Yeah, Michael, I began to realize that the radical left in America does not believe that America can be fixed. It has to be destroyed and rebuilt on a Marxist foundation, cultural Marxism. Very quickly, cultural Marxism says we can bring about a Marxist state, not with a bloody revolution, that's not necessary, but incrementally. But what we have to do is to capture law, education, the media, vote for the right people, we can bring it about. So our history is being vilified today, the Judeo-Christian basis of America. So I asked the question, how should the church respond to that? And every one of these chapters, by the way, has the response of the church. Then I apply it to race and show that the whole idea of critical race theory and diversity studies are intended to keep people in perpetual conflict. There's no interest in any kind of reconciliation. That is intended because the idea is that the oppressed have to overcome their oppressors. Marx, of course, would love it because everyone fit into one of those two categories. Now, very quickly, one of the most important chapters has to do with, you know, how does propaganda work? Very important for us to understand propaganda, and we could talk about that. And then You know, I also have a chapter on socialism, the sexualization of children. Mm. But, Michael, I didn't write the book to reclaim the culture. I don't think that's possible. I wrote the book to reclaim the church because I have begun to see that the church is much more influenced by the culture than influencing the culture, and we are submitting to the culture, and we are shamed into silence. That's why I wrote the book entitled we will not be silenced. In the intro, you write, I dedicate this book to those who seek to stand for the truth and still be loving. To those who are willing to be identified with the cross of Christ despite the possible vitriol and consider it a badge of honor. I dedicate this book to all who are convinced that how we are perceived on earth is not as important as to how we are perceived in heaven. I dedicate this book to all who believe that the day of casual commitment to the gospel must come to an end. We will not be silenced. Information on the bottom of our show notes on how to acquire the book. Well, one of the things we do with some of our friends and guests is ask them these 10 questions, Erwin. We're going to go through them one by one. Number one, 
The concept of in context is understanding the context in which Scripture was written and then how we apply it to a biblical worldview in your personal context. So, to begin with, in the context you live and work, uh, how do you integrate this biblical worldview with the world you're in? Well, Michael, if I'm answering your question correctly, you know, since I transitioned at Moody Church and became pastor emeritus, the ministry of Running to Win has continued. I do other kinds of videos. I write blogs. And of course, I write books, as you've already noted. So within my context, my burden, as is yours, is how do we take the scripture in context? And I love that phrase. And we apply the scripture to our present situation. And so what we try to do is to be thoroughly biblical because we are convinced that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation and that there is power in the word of God and that the word, here's a quote from Martin Luther that's very famous. He said, you know, I had nothing to do with the Reformation, which of course was really not true. But then he said, I just sat here in Wittenberg, you know, and drank with my friend Amsdorf, and I let the word do the work. So that's a very famous phrase from Martin Luther. I just let the word mm -hmm. do the work. He said, the word did it all. The word brought down the authority of the Pope. The word is what brought about the Reformation. So we need to help people to understand that in this world in which so many things are going wrong, we need renewed confidence in the Word of God. What has been the greatest challenge in your own spiritual journey? Well, I would say that personally, and I think that's the way in which this question is intended, it is consistency and discipline. You know, there are many people who look at uh, those of us who are in ministry, they look at you, they look at me, and they think that somehow we float through all of these challenges of life and that we have no difficulty at all managing life because we are so spiritual, as Hendricks used to say, we go to heaven every evening and return in the morning. <laughs> well, fact is we don't. Before I roll out of bed every morning, I pray a prayer that says, O oh Lord, glorify yourself in my life today at my expense. In other words, today I want to bring you glory, and I don't want it to be about me. I think that when we wake up in the morning, we always have to focus on God. And for a long time also, I'm thinking, for example, of Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, Arise, shine, for thy light has come, and the glory of the Lord is upon thee. Now, I know that that doesn't apply to us directly. I think it has to do with Israel. But the point is that we need to accept each day as from God's hand. So I always try to begin the day in fellowship with God. Another verse of scripture that I quote after I get out of bed is, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. So what you want to do is to renew your soul with God. That involves prayer. I pray for one of our grandchildren every day. And actually, I have them in a rotation so that on Monday, I pray for so-and-so. On Tuesday, I pray for so-and-so. 
And so what you want to do is to commit the day to God and make sure that there is no daylight between God's will and your will and deal with any issues that God brings to your attention. Now, Michael, just to share with you personally, what I've discovered oftentimes is that God doesn't answer my prayers the way in which I want them answered. You've had that experience too. So I have learned that God kind of does whatever God wants to do. (laughs) So part of my time every single morning is worship. By that I mean I come before the Lord and I say, Lord, I don't understand a lot of things. God is very mysterious to me in many respects. Thankfully, we know him through Jesus, but he's mysterious to me. But today, I want to focus on you and I want to give you glory and honor your name. And I want to have a time when I don't ask a single thing. I just want to be in your presence and say, Mm -hmm. today, I want to worship you and give you glory. So that kind of indicates how my day begins, but I failed frequently and, you know, you pick yourself up and you do it again. And uh, you and I know what it's like to get out of bed and get a phone call and then you get off on a series of other kinds of issues and pretty soon the day is passed. Yeah. Yeah. Third, do you have a key ver- and I know I don't like these kind of questions, so you know, it's not the key, you know, so I say do you have a key verse or a favorite book of the Bible? Well, I'm sure that I have both, but if you're asking me for a key verse when I'm asked to autograph something, I always use Psalm 16 verse 11. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. It's a verse that reminds us that, you know, following God is a very pleasant experience. And Psalm 1611 emphasizes that. And so that's the verse that I generally use. But if you're asking me about a book in the Bible, I think it's really hard Mm -hmm. to make that decision. But I love the book of Romans, and I'll tell you why especially when you get into the eighth chapter. The eighth chapter of Romans deals with the issue of suffering in a way perhaps that no other passage really does. It speaks to the heart, but also the tremendous blessings that are ours in Jesus Christ. And then you get to the end of the chapter with the assurance that nothing is going to separate us from the love of God, tribulation, distress, persecution, nakedness, total destitution, the sword, martyrdom, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We need those kinds of promises over and over again. So after the Bible, do you have two, three books that have been particularly uh, helpful or impacted your life? You know, that's a very difficult question for me to answer. And I'll tell you why, because Oftentimes in the area of my study, I'm constantly doing reading. Just to give you an example, and I wouldn't say that this has been a life-changing book, but right now I'm reading Vody Bauckham's book entitled Fault Lines. Are you acquainted with that book? I'm not. I'm acquainted with Vody, but not the book. What he discusses is critical race theory, and he gives such a strong biblical affirmation of what has gone wrong in our culture It is just powerful. But 
Historically, I really was touched and moved by John Piper's book entitled Desiring mm-hmm. God, yeah. where he talked about the fact that if we desire God and we are most satisfied in him, he is glorified in us. And the emphasis that he put on the fact that ultimately it is all about God and his glory and not about ourselves. So I remember reading that book. Of course, I've also read Tozer, his knowledge of the holy. I think all of us have read that. And there are a number of other books that have influenced me, even historically. I'm thinking, for example, of Martin Luther's book, The Bondage of the Will. Now, why is that book important to me? In the whole debate regarding free will versus predestination, Luther writes in response to Erasmus, who is emphasizing free will, Luther writes a defense of predestination and the sovereignty of God that sometimes almost takes your breath away. If I might paraphrase something that just pops up in my mind about what Luther says, He says, in effect, to believe that God is good, though he saves so few and damns so many, is the highest degree of faith. Mm -hmm. And isn't it true that our greatest challenge is to believe that God is good? When we know that there are other things that he could do, he could clean up the world, he could make sure that those who don't believe don't even exist. I mean, he's got all kinds of options, and it is what it is. And Luther's whole point is what we need to do is to bow before the mystery of God. And then Luther says this, when the mysteries regarding God are so great that we can't take it anymore, we have to hurry to Christ Mm -hmm. because in him we see God. He who has seen me has seen the Father. And there we are renewed as to what God is like. Great wisdom, a great book. Number five, what is one of the biggest lessons you have learned in your life at this point? It depends on the kind of lessons you have in mind. If you are talking about lessons regarding people, one of the greatest ones that I have learned is that people don't change. <laughs> that's so hard. You know, that's, that's so, so hard. hard. No, I know. That's so I, hard. I, 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 I empathize. I mean, it's true. You know, there have been many a person I've said, you know, there is a Chinese proverb that says that uh, no matter how long you cook sand, it never becomes rice. (laughs) And, you know, I've dealt with people who are very narcissistic and you wish that you would see spiritual progress, but they are what they are. And so that's one of the biggest lessons I have learned. But the other, of course, has to do with the faithfulness of God. When you're going through a trial, you don't see this. And I went through my share of trials also, of course, as pastor and in real life. When you're going through a trial like that, you don't necessarily see God. Only in retrospect do you see God. But the point is, the more we have lived and the longer we have lived, the greater our trust in God. That doesn't mean that we trust him implicitly or continually. It means that we are beginning to see that God has been faithful in the past. And you look, for example, in the Old Testament, God was always saying this to Israel. Namely, you should have confidence in the future because of all that I have done for you in the past. And so 
consistently in my life, one of the great lessons is at the end, it all has to do with God. It all has to do with trusting his providence. Like the old saying goes, you know, even when we cannot trust his hand, we trust his heart. I think there is a saying like that. And we have to trust God in the midst of difficulties. But at the same time, we need to know that God brings trials into our life, even oftentimes through people, and we need to accept that from God's hand. Elizabeth Elliot is quoted as saying, in acceptance, there is peace. I think, for example, of Zophar in the book of Job. Why dost thou strive against the Almighty? He giveth not account of his matters. The older I get, the more mystery there is to yeah. God, but also the more certainty that we do know him through Jesus Christ. You know, th these are questions about you, but that provokes two things. When we were in Virginia, Cindy and I living there, I had excruciating back issues, and I can remember laying on this uh, couch in a very awkward position with one leg outstretched to try to mitigate the pain, and I was in tears, and I was having trouble getting an appointment for the doctor, and the medications weren't helping, and I was at my wit's end, and I told Cindy, uh, there was a, a freeway, 66 and 495, there was a place that was elevated, and I said, I would never do this, but I can understand why someone would jump off of a bridge when there's so much pain and want it to end. And I said to her, I don't know how to keep doing this. And I looked at her and said, how do I go on? And I can still see her, Irwin. And she closed her eyes for a moment, and she said, I don't know, but all I do know is God has carried us this far. Why would he not carry us in the future? And that's been, you know, 20 plus years of back surgeries and back pain, but he continues to carry us. To your first point about people not changing, and I agree with you on this too quickly, does the gospel give us hope that you use the narcissist could yes. change? Yes, of course, of course. But here's what you need to understand about narcissism. And by the way, for all who are listening, we're all born as narcissists. It's just that it is on a continuum. <laughs> Some are better, better at suppressing yeah. it. <laughs> Does God change people? Absolutely. But here's the thing that I have learned God does not change people who do not want to be changed. Bingo. Yeah. That's the issue. If you are unwilling to see yourself the way you are and to submit to God on those points, there will not be change. And so what we need to do is to recognize that God does bring about transformation, but it's in the lives of those who are open to it. And that's where the gospel does its greatest it's, it's work. The, it's the penitent. You know, it's the one, uh, be merciful to me, the sinner, right? What is uh, one thing you'd long for every believer to know, to do, a way to live their life? I think that I would long for all of us, and this includes me and you and everybody who's listening, to begin to see life from an eternal perspective, you know, during the dark days of Hitler, Niemöller was criticized for confronting Hitler directly. And they said, you know, you shouldn't have done this and so forth. It's an interesting story. But here's the point. Niemöller asked the question and said, 
because people said, what does the church look like? And he's the one who actually said, the issue is not what the church looks like on earth, but what the church looks like in heaven. If we began to see our lives from an eternal perspective, what we would begin to do is to look at life very differently and realize that even if we are vilified in this life, even if we are misunderstood in this life, even if we feel that we have been given a very bad hand, so to speak, it's okay. Because the suffering of this present world is not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. It would transform our giving. Do you think you have to live long enough to get to that posture? Because I, I think as you and I get older, you know, we have less runway <laughs> and we're more aware our, our days are very numbered. When you're 20s, 30s, 40s, you're kind of living for the moment, for the children, for the marriage, for the career, etc. And then when things start to slow a bit, you think a little more eternality and I just wonder, I think sometimes we're asking Christians at certain decades that are, maybe aren't ready to digest. Yes, yes that's, that's true. You know, I'm reminded of the words of Samuel Johnson, who says, nothing focuses the mind like the knowledge that one is to be hung in a fortnight. <laughs> <laughs> the point is that the older you get, and I always say, you know, the good thing about old age is it doesn't last very long. <laughs> <laughs> the older you get, the more you indeed do focus on eternity. But at the same time, that's a lesson that the younger generation needs has to, hear. to learn. Yeah, needs to hear they it. need to hear it, and they need to learn it because their days are also numbered. Yeah. Okay, number seven, your greatest disappointment in your context of ministry, etc. The greatest disappointment in the context of ministry is when people that you depend upon either betray you or they aren't faithful the way in which you think they should be. The disappointment even in the redeemed at times. And I'm not being judgmental here because there's no doubt that there have been people who have been disappointed in us. But at the same time, when you have a vision of someone living up to a certain standard and then you feel betrayed, I even am thinking of pastors whom I know who have fallen into immorality. And you say to yourself, he's the last guy I ever believed would do this. So it's the disappointment of people it's the disappointment, too, in your case, I'm sure, when God has not healed you from all of your pain that you are enduring. And you wish that, you know, God did different things and he doesn't. So I think that that is a disappointment. I think that when we look back on our lives, we'll see that those disappointments, however, are God's appointments, as it frequently has been said. And so we move on. But there's plenty of things that happen in the world to discourage us. Number eight, your greatest encouragement in your context in ministry. Michael, I'm being more candid here than probably I need to be, but you know, I'm not a born leader. I'm not somebody who's type A personality, who sees the vision and rallies people around them and says, you know, I have to do this and this is the direction we're supposed to take. I don't think in those terms. I'm phlegmatic. I'm laid back, but you know what? God blessed me anyway. 
When I was pastor of Moody Church, most of the good things we did, and we did a lot of things, were not my idea. They were the ideas that came from the staff. But what I did is I became their cheerleader. When I saw a good idea, I encouraged them, and if it was necessary, I promoted it to try to help them. So the greatest encouragement to me is that I, as a farm boy born in southern Saskatchewan, Canada, would be given opportunities that I could have never possibly imagined or predicted. That, I think, is the great encouragement. I have to tell you that when we came to Chicago and I became pastor of a small Baptist church, now actually we were on our way to the East Coast. The fact that we stayed in Chicago was, again, an act of God's providence, okay? But I remember walking past Moody Church as clearly as anything and going into the empty church and looking around and saying to myself, someday I will tell my children and my grandchildren that I was in Moody Church. Because I was planning to study philosophy and teach in a seminary, and I never thought that we'd stay in Chicago. But I thought to myself, someday... I'm going to tell my grandchildren that I was there. Little did I know <laughs> that I would be senior pastor for 36 years. So has God often surprised me? Just this morning in my devotional time, Michael, I was just giving praise to God for the way in which he led me. And I'm so undeserving mm. of his leadership and his mercy. So... I look back and so many things mm -hmm. are an encouragement to me. That hymn that is a bit of a ditty, uh, count your blessings, name them one by one. I often review those when, when I get discouraged or frustrated or disappointed, whatever, with others or myself. I just recount, he called me, he saved me, he forgives me of my sins, he gave me an incredible wife. And I think we forget to take stock, don't we? of the good things God has done. And we're, uh, the other phrase I often say is comparison is the kiss of death of gratitude. The moment I compare myself to someone else's lifestyle, their wealth, their uh, homes, whatever, I start to lose gratitude for what I have been given. And it's such a great, important recalibration that, you know, he's blessed you with Rebecca. He's blessed me with Cindy and these extraordinary marriages and friendships we have. Most people never ever get to enjoy that type of blessing, and they forget what they have. Forget not all his benefits, it says in the Psalms. I forget the ranking of those, but fear not is the number one injunction command in the Bible. But remember and or don't forget are also in that top 10 list if memory serves. Okay, let's go on. Number nine, if you could write a letter to 18-year-old Erwin Lutzer, what advice would you give him? Well, this question kind of catches me off balance because I thought you were going to ask, what advice would I give to somebody who's 18 today? <laughs> and the first thing I was going to say is, get off the internet. <laughs> but I did not have that temptation when I was growing up. I grew up in a home on a farm where we had a box on a wall, and that was the phone. And the phone was a party line. Yes, so I remember our ring was two longs and two shorts. You know, if you rang two longs and one short, it was the neighbors. Interesting. 
But what we used to do as kids is we would listen in. Of course, in. yeah. <laughs> that was the party. So I'm not going to write If it's a letter to me, it would not be a letter that would say, stay off of the internet or get off your cell phone. I might say that to an 18-year-old today, but not to me when I was 18. I think when I was 18, what I would have said to myself in retrospect is, don't allow your limitations to keep you where you are. God has put in you a desire to preach. I knew that even back then. And along the way, there were times when I got off course, when I was doing other things, when I wanted to do other things. And so I think that the letter would just be a letter of encouragement to continue to follow the Lord and to be obedient and to continue to do all that you possibly can to avoid pitfalls. Take a great deal of care as to who you're going to marry. And thankfully, that's been fulfilled in my life through Rebecca. So I would give that kind of advice. Okay, last question. What would you like your epitaph to say? If at my memorial service people said he loved God, he loved his wife, he loved his children and his grandchildren and prayed for them, and he loved people, I would die satisfied. But I've often thought of the words of the Apostle Paul in the 20th chapter of Acts. And Michael, I think this is your testimony too. I think that this describes you. Acts chapter 20, verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I think for an epitaph, which has to be very brief, it would be okay if it simply said he loved the gospel. All right. A question not on the 10 questions. We'll call it the 11th question. Talk to us about parenting and how, because you know, our culture is obsessed with parenting and overparenting and schools parenting and school boards, and we're in a mess, Erwin. So think with us about parenting. I want to emphasize how precious it is to guide children in the right way. In fact, I think of my parents and the impact they had on my life, but I want to illustrate it this way. I want to tell you the story of two mothers. One mother's name was Morrow. She, of course, was in North Carolina. She raised a boy on a farm. She called him Billy. And as you might have guessed, he turned out to be Billy Graham. She did not know, though, as a farm boy, that she was raising the world's most famous evangelist. Let me tell you about another mother who lived in Austria. Her name was Clara. Now, Clara was a very devout Catholic, and when she was told that she had cancer, she accepted this from God's hand. The man that she married was abusive. Clara actually had six children, only two lived, a daughter and a son. The son took care of Clara during the last months of her life, and he developed a deep affection for her and, of course, a great deal of hatred for his abusive father. When she died, when this boy was 13 years old, he threw himself across the grave and thought that he would never stop weeping because now he was alone in the world 
and his precious mother had died. Clara's last name was Hitler. Now, the reason that I tell those two stories is, and I want to leave this with every parent, every Sunday school teacher, every impact that we have on children, you have no idea who it is that you are raising. And the impact that you have in a child's life one way or another can be absolutely huge. Take care. And when it comes to education in our schools, don't take precious lambs and throw them to the wolves. God is holding you accountable as a parent for the parenting of your children and for their education. Now, if you need to go to some public school somewhere, and that's the only option, you have to stay on top of everything that they are being taught. You have to be there continually. I don't mean to be physically present at the school, but you have to know every textbook. You have to know what the teachers are saying. You need to stand against the terrible culture in our schools because God has given you a special gift for which you are responsible. Now, if I might humbly suggest, in my case, for example, there were no preachers on either side in my family. My family, they were actually Germans, but they were raised in the Ukraine. In World War I, went through tremendous suffering. Came to Canada, met in a church. My mother was gloriously converted there. My father had previously been converted. He asked if he could walk her home. On their first date, he asked whether or not she would marry him. And within three weeks, they were married. Wow. But even as they raised us as children, they could not foresee what these children would be like. I have four brothers and sisters. I'm the youngest. Each of us, in one way or another, has been involved in spreading the gospel. I say that to the glory of God, not the glory of my parents, except to say this, that when you think of our background and the opportunities that we have had, we have to recognize the fact that God is the one who determines, who gifts, who calls. Take care of that child that you are raising, that child that is giving you so much trouble, that child that is so shy that he or she will not speak. And that was me, by the way. I was a very shy boy. My Sunday school teacher said to my sister not too many years ago before the Sunday school teacher died, he was so shy I wanted to slap him just to get him to say something. <laughs> Never underestimate what God might do through a child who really shows no promise mm but treat them well, pray for them, guide them, because years later, you might be surprised at what God has done. You made a point earlier about we need a good hero, and now you talked about teachers and influences, and we could have a long, wonderful discussion with every believer about that one or two persons in your life who prayed for you, who believed in you, when you were a troublemaker or, or being picked on and they encouraged you, they loved you, they said one thing to you that turned the tables. And I have those stories, and I think probably most people do. One person believed in you. Of course, we remember our friend Howie Hendricks and his, his story about uh, from a broken home, which in his day was rare, and the teachers that he had that were basically uh, just not very kind. 
and was it his fourth or fifth grade teacher? And she goes, I've heard about you, Howie Hendricks, and what a troublemaker you are. And she goes, but I don't believe a word of it. And that changed his direction in education. That's right. The word to a child and negative words mm. are destructive. And they stay with us. Erwin Lutzer, pastor emeritus of the Moody Church in downtown Chicago. We have all the information you need about him in the show notes. If you've not picked up uh, one of Dr. Lutzer's books, I highly commend his newest book he's put out. We will not be silenced. You'll enjoy it. You'll be challenged. Our friend David Jeremiah was kind enough to write the uh, introduction to it. Erwin, I could spend all day with you, my friend. Thanks for your time. Thanks for Thank you, Michael. By. It's been fun, but and, uh, I hope also a blessing. It has been a blessing, and we'll get you back, God willing. Thank you. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.